episode 34 of the podcast history does you today we'll be talking about the 1980 democratic primary between ted kennedy and jimmy carter since the election i believe is 46 days out i think i'm recording this on september 22nd i thought it'd be appropriate to do at least one episode about some sort of political history and i had the opportunity to talk about the 1980 democratic primary with john ward so i thought it'd be kind of an interesting topic to cover especially because it was a unique time in american politics it was coming at a time Politics in the late 70s before Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980 was pretty interesting. You had the Vietnam War, the Watergate, and ultimately the resignation of Richard Nixon, which created all this distrust and wariness in government and politics. And Jimmy Carter sort of rose that distrust with Nixon being a Republican into the White House. But by 1980, there were a series of crises in his presidency and Ted Kennedy, who obviously came from the famous Kennedy dynasty, political dynasty, rose up to challenge him. And I think it was the last time that a challenger challenged a incumbent president in a primary, if I'm not mistaken. It's the last time it's happened. And although Carter eventually won, what set the stage for the drastic changes in politics that were going to come in the 80s under Reagan and George W. the first, once he was elected in 1988. So it was an interesting conversation, an interesting time in American politics, and I think political history can be quite interesting, despite the tribalism polarization that exists today. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and our conversation. On today's episode, we welcome on John Ward. He is the senior political correspondent for Yahoo News and host of the Long Game podcast. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades. He has been published in the Washington Post, The New Republic, Politico, Vanity Fair, The Huffington Post, and The Washington Times. He recently wrote Camelot's End, which documents the 1980 Democratic primary and what we'll be talking about today. So welcome on. Thank you so much, Riley. It's great to be with you. And to start off, what is your favorite subject of history or politics to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the 1980 Democratic primary? Well, I don't know if the 1980 is my favorite. And in general, favorite type questions are always hard for me because I love to second guess myself. So I'll just bypass the favorite part. I will say that that period of time is interesting to me. I was born in 1977. And This is not at all why I wrote this book, but the late 60s and early 70s, that period of time kind of leading up to my birthday, is an interesting time in the history of America. I just read a great book by Princeton professor Eddie Gloud, who's a regular on Morning Joe, about the writer James Baldwin. Baldwin died, I think, in the 80s. But that book is about how the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was betrayed, to use Eddie's term, really kind of the end of the 60s and into the 70s. And so Eddie's argument is that you have law and order type legislation being increased. You have mass incarceration really beginning to tick up at that moment in time in the 70s and then takes off under Reagan in the 80s. And of course, MLK was assassinated in 68. So there's that dynamic, but there's also a dynamic in American religion that happened at that time. I was raised in a very devout, fundamentalist, evangelical, white evangelical culture. This was just north of the Washington, D.C. And so my second book is likely to be 
some type of tracing the history of my own sort of path and sort of American Christianity through that lens of what came out of the 70s. Because I don't know if you and your listeners know this, but there was kind of a religious revival that happened in the 70s. It was called the Jesus Movement. And that's where my parents came out of. So there's a lot that happened in that period. And then 1980 was part of that that time period. And the reason I got interested in that is a whole nother story. I can get into that now if you want, but I've already made a very long answer to your first question. Yeah. I mean, I would follow up. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered either writing this particular book or as a political journalist? Well, this question is really, really a loaded one in a good way, because the biggest challenge right now by far as a journalist, as a citizen of America as a citizen of the world, I think, in the information age, is that we don't know what's, increasingly people don't know what's true anymore. They don't know who to trust. They don't know how to figure out whether information is accurate or not. And we have, unfortunately, a president who is taking advantage of that for political reasons. To help his own political standing, he is increasingly using a contentious relationship with the media, he basically is becoming more and more detached from truth-telling because he knows that every time that the press calls him out on that, he can call them fake news and get his own supporters to hate the press. I understand critiques of the media and media bias, and I think that there is a lot to criticize about the press going back several decades, but it has been taken by Donald Trump what the traditional conservative complaint was that the press was biased, but Donald Trump has taken it and used it in a completely amoral way for his own political advantage and has now separated many portions, components of the Republican Party almost completely from facts. And to get into the 1980 Democratic primary, which we'll be talking about, to start off with Jimmy Carter, who was elected president in 76 after some turbulent times in the 60s and early 70s, how did he sort of rise to the top of democratic politics and ultimately what was kind of his path to becoming president? There's so many great things about studying history, which is why it's great that you're doing this podcast. I did not really learn this myself until the last decade that the way we choose presidents now is not the way that it was always done. And in fact, for most of our history, it was done in a different manner. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is not, I'm not talking about the general election, which is when all Americans go to the polls on one day and they choose the president between generally Republican and Democrat. I'm talking about the nominating process inside the two political parties. Up until the 1970s, the parties chose their nominees through their conventions. And the people who chose their nominees were party insiders, party bosses, and party activists. It was very much an insider process. And there are many problems with that, but one of the advantages was that it was a way to keep unqualified people from becoming a party's nominee. Now remember, parties are not governmental institutions, they are private enterprises. But during the 70s in particular, that was still a new thing for politicians. And so Jimmy Carter had these very young strategists and aides who understand the system, saw the rules, and quickly adapted. That's a big part of why he won 76. Another reason is that Ted Kennedy didn't run. And if Ted Kennedy had run in 76, that would have changed the dynamic. I don't know if Teddy would have won or not, but you wouldn't have had 17 candidates. And then the other reason I think Carter won is because 
the country was heartsick and exhausted after Watergate and Vietnam War before that and the tumult of the 60s and assassinations. And so Jimmy Carter presented this person who promised to bring healing to the nation. He was deeply and devoutly religious, a Christian, and he talked about the goodness of America. And he was in a way kind of like Reagan. And then he tried to be an optimist and tried to rouse people to their better angels. And what was the state of the Carter presidency as the 1980 Democratic primary kind of approached? What challenges had he faced as president? Well, a lot. We just talked about 1976. If you skip forward four years, Jimmy Carter has come to Washington as an outsider and never really did a ton of work to make himself an insider. And I know the word insider has negative connotations now, but when you're working a complicated system, like the executive branch of the government, there are good things about being an insider. You know how to work the mechanics of government and how to effectively promulgate the workings of government. And so he never embraced Washington. That was one problem. And then he began to face a series of challenges that kind of escalated over the course of his presidency. Some of them were economic. There was intense inflation, which is just the cost of goods was going up and up and up for the average American at the grocery store. Interest rates were high. And so it was hard to get a loan to make major purchases like a car or a home. And he probably bit off more than he could chew in his first year. There was also the dynamic of the press still thinking very much in terms of Watergate and looking for a scandal to try to take down the president because they had just taken down the last one or the one before Gerald Ford. And then in 1979, you had an energy crisis. You have gas lines that begin to develop at uh, petrol stations across the country. There's violence at some of these gas stations. And that all leads into the summer of 79, Jimmy Carter looks increasingly ineffectual. He tries to give a speech in the summer of 79, which is now known as the Malaise speech. It actually goes well at first because most people have forgotten that it was well-received at first, but a series of missteps in the days afterward led to a crisis of confidence, I think, in the country, in this president. And that's when Ted Kennedy decided to run against him because by the fall of 79, this is before the hostage crisis happens in Iran, Polling shows Kennedy beating Carter in the Democratic primary by two to one. And so Ted Kennedy at that point, having foregone a run in 68 and in 72 and in 76, decides that he will now run for president and challenge sitting incumbent of his own party, who is extremely weak. And to get into Ted Kennedy, did his rise in politics come from kind of the political legacy of his family or did he kind of have his own political ambitions that were separate from his brother's? Well, I think all of us have ambitions. It's hard to know what Teddy Kennedy's truest ambitions were. Very early in life, after he graduates from UVA Law School, shortly after his brother, John F. Kennedy, has been elected president, he was newly married. He may have had a kid at that point. He ended up having, I think, three or four. And he wanted to kind of go out on his own. He had worked on his brother's presidential campaign, but I think he wanted to get out from the shadow of his brother and his other brother, Bobby Kennedy, who was set to become attorney general in the Kennedy administration, and his own father, who was an incredibly powerful figure, Joseph Kennedy. Joseph P. Kennedy was the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain during World War II. 
he was a potential candidate for president himself during the 30s and very controlling of his family and of his sons and very hard driving of their ambition. And so when Ted Kennedy made his desires known to go out West, his father said, nope, you're going up to Massachusetts and you're going to take your brother's place as the U.S. Senator in the seat that he's now vacated to become president. So that's basically how he got into politics. That was 1962 that he took over his brother's seat, which incidentally was around the time that Jimmy Carter was just getting into politics down in Georgia. And was the push to challenge Carter, did that come from insiders within the Democratic Party itself, or was it more of Ted Kennedy taking it upon himself to challenge Carter? Um, I didn't hear most of the question. Sorry. Oh, sorry about that. Was the push to challenge Carter, did that come from insiders within the Democratic Party, or was it more of Ted Kennedy's sort of own ambitions? I think there was definitely insiders in the party who wanted a challenge to Carter, but most of the insider motivation was derived from polling. And again, polling showed that a Kennedy challenge would win. A lot of people in Congress were, a lot of Democrats were very concerned that Jimmy Carter would drag them down in a down ballot effect. Because if you have an unpopular president who's a Democrat, that increases the chances that Democratic senators and congressmen are going to lose their elections. That was a large part of the impetus for Democrats to want to challenge and get rid of Jimmy Carter. And was there an ideological divide between the two candidates or was it more of just a fight over kind of the failures of the Carter presidency? Yeah, great question. There was an ideological divide. Ted Kennedy's signature issue was universal health care. And he had pushed Jimmy Carter to make that a core issue during the 76 campaign. Carter kind of put it on the back burner and didn't prioritize it. There was a speech in 1978 in Memphis, where Ted Kennedy made it clear that he was still intent on getting national health care and took the Carter presidency, the Carter administration, to task for not getting it done. And that was the moment, actually, that certain Carter advisors felt like they knew that Ted Kennedy was going to run against them in the primary. So yes, there was differences on health care and how to prioritize that and how ambitious to be. There were differences on how to deal with inflation. Jimmy Carter wanted to cut spending. Ted Kennedy wanted to react to the impacts of inflation on middle class and poor and working families by increasing government aid to those people, basically trying to shield them from the worst effects of that inflation. So that was another big difference. And personality and leadership style was another almost quasi-ideological difference. It wasn't about policy. It was about leadership style. Ted Kennedy felt like Jimmy Carter couldn't inspire confidence in the country and was not enough of an insider to understand how to make the government work. And as Kennedy challenged Carter in the primary, was how deeply divided was the party over which candidate to back? Huh, that's a good question. It's one that I haven't thought about in a while. Jimmy Carter still commanded significant support from certain corners of the party. One example of this is the teachers unions because Jimmy Carter created the Department of Education, the federal department. And so that was a major win for teachers unions and the National Education Association still backed him in 80, largely because of that. And Carter made ample use of the power of the presidency to basically use patronage 
appointing people to certain positions, giving people areas of influence to secure support. A lot of opposition to Carter was from the more liberal elements of the Democratic Party. And, you know, the other component here to factor in is the South. Jimmy Carter was from Georgia. He represented what people at that point, at that time, called the New South. He had been instrumental in helping to divorce the Democratic Party from George Wallace. George Wallace had run for president in 76 and 72 and and gotten millions of votes as a Democrat from white Southern Democrats who were conservative. That was all a vestige of the pre-civil rights Dixiecrat type era. So it was a mixed bag, but there was certainly significant momentum for getting rid of Carter. And how badly did Ted Kennedy's interview with Roger Mudd of CBS kind of hurt his chances? And what went on during that interview? The Mudd interview was really harmful to the way that political insiders and the political press viewed Ted Kennedy's candidacy because Roger Mudd did an hour special and the first half hour was all about Chappaquiddick, which was an incident in 1969 where Ted Kennedy left a party on Martha's Vineyard late at night. And the next morning, his car that he had been driving was in the water upside down. And the young woman he had been with was in the backseat dead. And so that was a big reason why he never ran. That was Mary Jo Kopechny. Kennedy probably should have been prosecuted and found guilty and faced criminal penalties, but he was let off with a slap on the wrist and remained a senator. I think just to sort of branch off into that for a moment, I don't say that to say that that is uh, entirely definitive for Ted Kennedy. I think he became a truly accomplished lawmaker, probably one of the greatest lawmakers in the history of the American Congress. But I'm a firm believer in, as a journalist and a writer, and to whatever degree I'm a historian, in telling the truth and embracing the complexity of our history and of the figures that make up our history. So what was the original question? I got off on that tangent and I forgot the original question. Well, how much did this kind of impact his chance? Oh, the Roger Mudd interview. Yeah, the Mudd interview. So Mudd spent 30 minutes of that hour really delving very deeply into the specific circumstances of what happened on Chappaquiddick Island. It was a devastating interview. And that was all before Roger Mudd asked him why he wanted to be president, which that is the moment that everybody remembers. And at that point, Kennedy gave a sort of rambling and vague answer. And that answer came to be representative for a feeling that Kennedy was running out of one of two things, or maybe both combined. And the two things would be a sense of entitlement and a sense of obligation. Entitlement because he was a Kennedy and obligation for the same reason, But neither one of them indicated a sincere desire on the view of many people to really lead the country out of idealistic motives. And so that interview happened the same week that he announced his candidacy a few days before. It also aired actually the same day that the hostages were taken in Iran. And to follow up on that, what impact did the Iran hostage crisis have on the primary? Did this initially help Carter in a sense? It did. I mean, that was another thing that as I got into studying the history of it, was surprising. Because most people think of the Iran hostage crisis as something that gravely damaged Jimmy Carter, which it did. It's maybe the main reason that he lost to Ronald Reagan in the fall of 1980. But in the winter of 1979, 
in November and December of 1979, a year before the election, when the hostages were taken, it benefited Carter because it rallied the nation around him during a time of crisis. And it was about two months before the first voting in the Democratic primary. And so Kennedy all of a sudden had to deal with a president who suddenly had the country supporting him. Plus, he couldn't really force his way into the news cycle, which was a key way to compete. And so he all of a sudden, overnight almost, became the underdog or was trailing in the polls. And did the rescue attempt that later occurred come back to haunt Carter and give Kennedy an opening to win wider support in the party and in the primary? That is a hard question for me to answer. That happened in April, late April of 1980, Operation Equal Claw. And there's a great book, Guests of the Ayatollah by Mark Bowden, about that operation. And I think the failure of that operation was harmful to Carter in some ways, but I never got a clear sense that it definitively hurt him. Certainly, Kennedy was on the ascent at that point in the primary, and Carter was losing altitude. And I think the failed rescue probably had something to do with that. But I also did see some evidence that there was one last sort of round of rallying around the president at that point. So it wasn't great. It wasn't great, that's for sure. And what were some of the other key events that happened during the primary? Did it get super nasty and personal between the two men? It's a funny question to think about in the light of our current politics. It might be, it's been a few years since I wrote the book now, and it might be that there were moments, I mean, there were certainly moments in the fall with Carter and Reagan where Carter was accused of being personally nasty. And there were elements of that with Kennedy where in Pennsylvania, Kennedy started was coming back in the primary and the Carter campaign ran ads that were sort of hinting at his past at Chappaquiddick and hinting at pretty kind of open rumors about him sleeping around and cheating on his wife. And the Kennedy camp was really angry about that. So I guess it was nasty in that way. It's just that compared to today, it seems pretty civilized. And although Carter would eventually win, do you think kind of the his primary battle kind of hurt his chances for re-election? I do. I mean, it's not that you can necessarily prove it statistically, but there's no doubt that having to go through such a bruising and extended battle in the primary weakened him. I think one of the key things to think about here is that one of Carter's closest advisors, a guy named Tom Donilon, who went on to become Barack Obama's national security advisor, was a young aide at that point, but he was very influential in the campaign. And when we had lunch in D.C. a couple of years ago, he told me that his great regret about the primary is that after the convention, Carter was not seen as a giant killer, even though he had just defeated a Kennedy in the primary. And I think that's key to understanding sort of the role of image. Carter, in fact, had just defeated a Kennedy. And yet at the end of the convention, he was viewed as weak because of the way that it happened. And do you think the outcome of the 1980 presidential election would have been any different if Kennedy had ended up winning the primary? Do I think what would have been different? The outcome of the 1980 presidential election. Mm. That might be above my pay grade, to be honest. That would take a lot of sort of really granular statistical number crunching, I feel like. It's almost too hard to try to go back and figure that out in retrospect just off the top of my head. But certainly the hostage crisis couldn't be laid at Kennedy's feet in the same way it could be to Carter. At the same time, 
Kennedy's personal life was a pretty significant liability. And the country was tilting in a conservative direction at that point. So I think it would have been a coin flip. The Kennedy name was powerful, very powerful. And there would have been a lot going for Kennedy in that way. And although Carter would go on to lose the November election, was he kind of able to rebuild his reputation for the work that he ultimately did after the presidency? He was. And you're seeing even today a kind of resurgence of Jimmy Carter nostalgia. There's a documentary coming out this week about Jimmy Carter. I think it's called Rock and Roll President. And it talks about his friendship with Bob Dylan, talks about his Christian faith. I just watched the trailer just a few minutes ago, and there's Bono from U2 talking about how Jimmy Carter was the first American president to make human rights a core pillar of American foreign policy. And that is not only a great thing, but defense secretaries such as Robert Gates have credited Carter's placing of human rights at the center of our foreign policy with doing a lot to defeat the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And so I think there's a rehabilitation of Carter's presidency. One of his former advisors, Stu Eisenstadt, came out with the book. There's a biography on him coming out by Jonathan Alter, I think, in October. But his post-presidency was unarguably a new model for what a president could do after leaving office. He promoted democracy and oversaw elections. He mediated disputes. He freed hostages. He alleviated disease. So he has been just a model of what a president can do after he leaves office. And I think that the more, this is the last thing I'll say on this, and I think it's the most important thing about him. He has many flaws, but I think the more his record is studied, I think the more people will see that he did not, for the most part, try to do things that were to his own political advantage that would have been dishonest or disadvantageous to the country. And I think the hostage crisis is probably the clearest example of that. And so I think he is an exemplary human being. And through the process of writing this book, he became sort of a personal hero to me. And my final question is, what do you think the legacy of the 1980 Democratic primary is? And overall, what impact did it ultimately have on American politics and the Democratic Party? The legacy of the 80 primary was that Democrats became very cautious about challenging the incumbent president. And so in 2008, I think it was, after Barack Obama had sort of clinched the nomination by delegates, there was some debate inside the Clinton campaign about how far to push her challenge, how far to stay in the primary. And part of the argument that was made to her by advisors about whether to get out was one that was based on the damage that was done to the party inside the party by the 1980 primary. There was a lot of bad blood between Democrats who were involved in that, persisted for a very long time. So it was seen as a damaging civil war inside the party. And that was the legacy inside the Democratic Party. And then I think the other legacy is that it sort of ushered in 12 years of Republican dominance of the presidency from two terms of Reagan to another term of George H.W. Bush. And it set up the Clinton presidency, which was a pretty moderate presidency in a lot of ways. And the Democratic Party is still having that debate over Clintonism and how moderate to be on issues like economics and race. 
So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Ward. Again, I think that political history can be super interesting. And as I mentioned before, I think that that gap between Nixon, Ford uh, administrations, and the Carter, and then into 12 years of Republican presidents all come at a unique time. Again, especially when there was a lot of cultural changes going on, there were economic changes that were going on whether it was rock and roll or that hippie movement that kind of embedded itself in American culture after Vietnam and all of that. And I think it's interesting looking at Jimmy Carter again, because we have such a different president than Donald Trump today. I mean, most people look at Jimmy Carter's presidency as not necessarily a failure, but one that wasn't that successful. But I think what he was able to do in the aftermath was super important. And as someone that is really into foreign policy, that makes geopolitics of foreign policy an important part of this podcast, I thought it was interesting that I was surprised that Jimmy Carter was sort of the first American president to really emphasize human rights as a core part of American foreign policy. And it's been an important part of American foreign policy ever since then, and still is in a lot of ways. That conversation kind of came out of the presidency, and you see whether it's the Human Rights Initiative and international organizations, I think just raising awareness of human rights abuses going on around the world was, I think, an important step for American foreign policy. And then also for the Kennedys, I mean, I think the Kennedys are a very unique family. Again, I know Mr. Ward sort of briefly mentioned, but there are still Kennedys involved in politics today. I think there is Joe Kennedy III. I think he's a representative in Massachusetts. I think he recently lost a primary for Senate. But again, it's interesting to examine a political dynasty that stretches pretty much for decades. I don't know what it would be like to be a part of a family like that that has those sort of legacies. So again, I think it was kind of an interesting episode. I think that political fights in the moment are difficult to assess, but as time goes on, it's a lot easier uh, to look back and kind of examine the history for what it can be. So hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I encourage you to go and register the vote. I think it's an important part of being a Republican democracy that we have the luxury of being able to vote. I know that, again, there are a lot of places in the world where you can't, and I think it would be foolish to not do it. So register, inform yourself, some states are more challenging. I registered the vote. So make sure you do that. I think some of the deadlines are coming up. I can't speak specifically. But again, I would encourage you just as the election is coming up to register and exercise your right as a citizen of the US or if you're a citizen of another democratic country that has elections coming up, take part in those. I think people can sometimes take those for granted. So that's just my spiel. Hope you enjoyed the episode and our conversation. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 